Welcome to the Lobby Podcast. This is Damien O'Darty. I am with a special guest, Brandon Wright. And he's he doesn't know why he's on this podcast, but I'm just going to tell you. He's on this podcast because he's one of the best definitions, in my view, of sort of old-time and online communication skills. So, you know, he's at the forefront of all the things we're watching seminars about on social media arbitrage and <clears throat> how to communicate effectively with public audiences. But then he writes notes and he sends little kind comments to you. He's just uh, a wonderful professional to work with. So Brandon Wright is the vice president of communications and media relations with the National Waste and Recycling Association. Uh, he's been there since 2017. Brandon, welcome Thank to you. the Lobby Podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Talk to me about how you got to... Uh, you call it NWRA. We, we do, yeah. So it's it's an interesting story. Relationships are very important uh, in, in what we do. And so, gosh, it was uh, 2008. I went to work for a trade association called uh, Petroleum Marketers Association of America. And uh, they were in Roslyn, D.C. and outside of D.C. and Roslyn, Virginia. And I, I got to know a guy named uh, Daryl Smith. He was uh, president of another much smaller trade association. And over time, we we kept in touch and really through Facebook and emails and, and that kind of stuff. And uh, as I kind of moved into the Hogan administration, I had been there a couple years towards the end of the, the first administration. And, uh, and I was looking to, to, to make a move out. Uh, wife and I had a growing family and uh, we decided that now would be a good time for me to uh, move out of the, the Hogan administration. And, and Daryl called me and said, Hey, I need a communications guy. Do you want to come work with me? And and I, I said, yes. So uh, he had been hired in July of 2017 and uh, I was his first hire made that fall. Uh, so I went to work for him at at the National Waste and Recycling Association, and that's that's how I I got there. But you know the the, the common thread um, through my my uh, professional career has been communications and and helping organizations uh, tell their story, and so I did that with uh, with Petroleum Marketers Association. I did that. Uh, I left there. Had my own little, uh, hung up my shingle. I had my own little firm for a little while. Managed a couple of local races in, in Annapolis. And, uh, and just helping tell the story and, and drive the narrative of of good people trying to do good things. And then that, uh, now I'm trying to do the same for uh, the waste and recycling industry. Talk to me about the Hogan years. You were health and planning or planning I, and health? I, I was, yeah. First first planning. I was chief of staff to, to David Craig. And and David, you may not no remember greater, no greater it. thing you can do in America than that. That's what I'm no. gonna say to that. And I think I have a few people that would second me, like Aaron Tamarkio, yes. yourself, probably half the state said it, maybe more. Just like an awesome dude. My county executive Jim Smith was uh, a collaborator uh with your guy, and David Craig was just like awesome to deal with all the time and uh so thank you for letting me go off on that one. Oh, absolutely. He is he is a, a, a tremendous 
a tremendous man, tremendous leader, uh, one of my most valued bosses and mentors uh, for, for sure. And, uh, and Damon, you may not remember, we first met there at planning. You had come in with Aaron to talk about trade point. That's going back. I know. I know. <laughs> uh, but, uh, that was, so that's why I'm on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but uh, I, I really enjoyed it there at, at planning. Um, we, we got to visit nearly every jurisdiction, talk to all sorts of, of county leaders, commissioners, city council members, uh, and, and other county executives about what was going on uh, in, in their neck of the woods. And as you know about David, he had been mayor of Haverty Grace twice. Uh, he had served in uh, both the state senate and, and as a state delegate in uh nine and a half years as county executive in Hartford County. So there's really no issue that he hasn't experienced in one one form or another. So he had a lot of great advice that he could lend uh to to some of these members and uh some some listened to it, some didn't, but uh it was always uh respectful, uh, honest dialogue uh that that happened and uh that was probably one of my, my favorite memories of, of my time there at planning was was taking a tour of, of the state and, and meeting with all these local uh, elected leaders. It was just a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And then um, and then I got moved to the Maryland Department of Health, um, as, as happens in administration sometimes. And I had no good, we call it no good deed goes unpunished. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Do Yeah, you do well one place. They want you to to do well somewhere else. And I was happy to go. To the Maryland Department of Health, where what I what a place to learn that is. I mean, you know, that just has some of the most brilliant minds in Maryland governance. You know, I mean, it's it's a it's a remarkable place, and then it's always, you know, this is sort of an institution of thought leadership in healthcare. I would say progressive healthcare, but we'll call it the Maryland model. It's, it's not progressive or conservative, but just, you know, always trying to adapt to meet the needs of the, of the citizenry. And, you know, those deputy directors over there, those people that you were, you know, they've been long, they're long, I call it the Bobby natural. Yeah. He was, he worked for like five County executives in Baltimore County. And he would always say, these are the public employees of Baltimore County, Damien. You see them all here. They've been here long before you. And when you leave the door, they will all be there. They will all be here still. So keep that in mind in everything you do. Uh, but, but the, you know, just very sort of vanguard um, elite policymakers at a lot of different levels over there. And so I'm sure, you know, the guy from planning is, you know, it's, yeah, I'm sure you have to show a lot of communication skills to begin to adapt to, you know, from one environment to the next. Yeah, it was. So I had oversight of the health occupation boards and they're all, this kind of gets the nuts and bolts of state budgeting, but the, they're, they're special funded. So is it, fair, is it fair to say that this is sort of like maybe outside of higher education, the highest level turf battles you can find in Maryland governance is those, those yes. different boards. Is that right? Yes. Uh, they, yeah. So before I got in there, one of the, the big turf battles was between uh, physical therapists uh, and acupuncturists. Um, and you know, it was, it was over, um, 
needling. So when you, when you, you were kind of doing it in the ear with kind of what the acupuncturist uses, but it's in the ear. And so um, there was some talk about, was that physical therapy? Is it acupuncture? Uh, there was always, that was always a great debate, but that got settled before I got there. And then another uh, debate was always between the podiatrists and the physicians. And uh, the, the podiatrist always wanted to keep moving from the foot uh, up the ankle to the knee. That's and right. It's all think, connected. It's all connected. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With, with, with that old song, you know, leg bones right. connected to the knee bone. That's, that, right. Uh, That's right. <laughs> so uh, they were able to reach a compromise and I think it stopped at the knee. Um, so it, it's plenty of, of turf battles and, and who does what and, 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 uh, and, and, you know, so for me, uh, what I really had to negotiate was the relationship between those semi-autonomous licensing boards and, and the Hogan administration. And yeah, that's no good deed goes unpunished. Exactly. Exactly. It was uh, the spot that I filled had been vacant uh, for some time. And, uh, and, and I was, you know, the, the, they didn't know who I was. They were a little um, unsure about who, who's this guy coming in? What's his role here? What's he going to do? And uh, with, within a few months, uh, I was told later that I had earned the respect of, of these boards just by simply listening to them. Uh, I didn't come in and, and turn over any apple carts. I just said to them, what do you need from me? What do you need from the Hogan administration so that you guys can continue to be successful? I, I, I don't know your profession, so I'm not going to tell you how to do it. But if there's resources that you need, let me, you tell me, and I will help you get them. And, uh, and, and I, I think that was helpful to them. That sounds eminently reasonable. You know, yeah. just, it's like just showing up. Hey, yeah. this is, I'm here. I'm here to help and not get in the way. <laughs> I'm from the government. I'm here to help. So, um, you know, what, what can I do to help you guys? And that was, that was my message to them. And, you know, we, we had, um, you know, sunset legislation every couple of years I was there where one board had was, was sunsetting. We had to renew that legislation. So, you know, I was going to, uh, going to, to lawmakers and, and explain to them the, you know, how this board works, uh, doing a lot of appointments, uh, so meeting with, um, executive nominations of, of and, and certainly the cabinet secretary, uh, it was, um, it was Dennis Schrader, uh, while I was there. And uh, just sitting down and identifying who were who were good people uh, that would would serve out in these roles that we we needed. They were important roles. We we needed people in the in the profession uh, to serve on these boards, and we certainly needed uh, folks outside of the profession to uh, to provide their insight as as consumers of those services. And that's when you was that when you moved had your own shingle after that. Or? That that is when I moved to NWRA. So that was. Uh, yeah, it 2017 uh, was I, I did my my time with uh, the state and went to NWRA. And then, how do you all, as a trade association, uh, work in a sort of state context, or are there state chapters? How does that all uh, flesh out the organization? Yeah, so we we have uh, we have state chapters. We're in most every state, uh, and and where we don't have an active chapter, we we typically have eyes in there through. 
uh, folks like Waste Management, Republic Services, some of the, the larger uh, national uh, organizations that are members, uh, they, they let us know what's going on in, in other states where we don't have eyes. And we send letters, make phone calls, those sorts of things to keep tabs on, on what's going on. But uh, you know, we're active here in Maryland. Uh, I, I manage the uh, the Maryland chapter. I'm involved with our Pennsylvania and Virginia chapters too. So uh, we're we're pretty robust in uh, in the state houses where where we work. From and you can answer this from an industry standpoint or just uh, a, a professional communicator standpoint, trying to get things done. Talk to me about the region: Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia. Well, what are some of the characteristics you really appreciate or, or, or could stand to get a little distance from as you operate in those kind of state in those different States, or I should say two commonwealths in a state. Yeah, no, I, I enjoy them. them all three States. Uh, I, I love, and uh, but Maryland as my home is, is very special to me. And we have just some, some really down to earth folks uh, out, out there collecting our, our, our waste. And I had a chance to do a ride along this summer with a driver from Republic Services. And we, we met up uh, in Southeast Baltimore at, at their facility and started my morning uh, at, at 1.30 a.m. And and this guy does this five days a week. And he's on a truck and it's all, all commercial accounts. So he's on the road, he's going into uh, businesses, he's, he's picking up uh, their, their cans uh, they have outside these large uh, containers, drives the forks, lifts it up, dumps it in the back. And this was, this is all cardboard that we were collecting. So um, we, we made several, uh, several stops and, and went to a material recovery facility. We call them MRFs where that car- cardboard uh, gets sorted and, and got, recycled. Brandon, you have two people in the truck with you or. It was me and one, one driver. Uh, so just, just two of us, um, uh, and Talk to me about him. What did you pick up from him? Uh, when you were on the ride. Like, yeah, his, his name is Brian Lang and he's from uh, the Saverna park area, uh, North of Annapolis. And yeah, he, he loves his job. He's, he's dedicated. Um, one of the things I, we talked about was some of these, uh, commercial areas where, where he collects, are near apartment buildings. And so he tries not to get to those locations too, too early to wake anybody up. So he's adjusted his route uh, so that he does those later in the morning, tries to do them between seven and, and, and eight 30 when folks are, are getting up and going to work uh, and not, not disrupt anyone sleeping. So uh, I, I found that interesting. And, and he always uh He's very popular with his customers. They call and they they compliment him on uh, they're trying to keep everything nice and tidy. Uh, sometimes when you you tip those cans, uh, sometimes the cardboard will fall out or not make it into the truck. And he's always careful to kind of pick up uh, any any debris that, that that comes out of these cans and and lock everything back up and leave things as, as nice as it can for the customer. This, so. is, this is the thing that the people in uh, that are making policy decisions in Annapolis or Richmond, uh, you know, with the power of the local government, you know, if you think about all your interactions 
like you're probably one of your more significant interactions other than your mailman is probably uh, the waist hauler, right? I mean, it's like that's like a day in and day out exemplar that government in partnership with the private sector can do a pretty darn competent job over a long period of time, all the while trying to address the emerging environmental concerns that, that, that grow with, with uh, the industry. You know, it's just to me as a local guy that worked for Baltimore County executive, you know, I, I, I felt like the Republic people, I felt like the folks that were in charge of our waste management were the most reliable, non-political, down-to-earth, you know, remarkably responsive people. So I just, I don't get, you know, I don't get to say that with all the people that represent <laughs> trade associations because sometimes that that message gets lost in all of all the all the big talk about what's going on in Congress or in different state capitals. So you, you've given us a, a, you know, a perspective there, uh, I think means a lot. Well, you're, you're right, Damien. So the, what we often say is that um, other than the postal service, we are the only other industry that travels every road at least once a week. Uh, you were, we're making collections everywhere and, and sometimes twice a week. So we we uh, try to be good partners with the communities we serve. And one of the ways we do that with our landfill operations uh, is is through compressed natural gas and landfill gas. So the, the, land, the landfill produces gas. We often uh, will uh, format that uh, in, into compressed natural gas. And then often... Uh, communities that have a, a CNG fleet just come in and fill up at, at these landfills. So we're able to uh, to be a good neighbor where we where we can, and we we want to be a good neighbor to every every community we, we serve. What's the future of landfills? Uh, are they finding ways to make them more and more uh, protective of the environment, or do you think, or is that something that we we will see uh, less and less of fifty years from now? Well, I, I think what, what we're seeing in the industry is that there's always going to be a need uh, to dispose of something somewhere. And, and landfills are highly engineered, highly regulated facilities that even the EPA recognizes as one of the best tools to manage waste. So there's always going to be a need for right. that. It's almost like logistics to zero, right? You're like, our job's to get legit, get this, take this piece of matter and get it to zero somehow, right? No small exactly. And 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 certainly there's an effort for the, the circular economy, and and we see that there's there's a, an effort to uh, reduce consumption, uh, reduce um, you know, the the amount of material that goes into uh, producing and packaging things. Uh, you take, for example, your, your plastic water bottle. Uh, the, the bottle itself has gotten thinner. Uh, the cap has gotten smaller. So, you know, there, there's packaging decisions that are being made around that. Um, and, and one of the issues that we see popping up uh, in, in state houses around the country, and, and I think four states have this now, extended producer responsibility. Uh, it's, it's something you might be familiar with in Colorado. Uh, it's one of the states that that has it. And Talk to me about it. what does that mean? So extended producer responsibility puts 
the responsibility back on the producer uh, to help address um, the end of life of of that product. So, so the water bottle, the water, the the the, the water company is in charge of being more responsible about what ends yes. up with that. So it would be it's it's the cokes, it's, it's bottlers um, that that really this, this falls down uh, on and. And so the the way the the uh, the legislation is is written and it comes up, you know, it's similar to some bottle bills, uh, where you have a deposit and those sorts of things. And what what we have always said is that, as as the waste and recycling industry, um, you know, if we're going to collect those bottles, if if for example, you know, the the, the right family is not going to return those plastic or glass bottles back to the store to collect that deposit, then the waste and recycling company that does once that, that does collect those bottles, once the value um, of, of that refund, whatever that, that nickel or dime or whatever it is that the, in the, that deposit is, they, they want that, that money. So that's, that's one, one provision we, we support in, in EPR legislation and bottle bill legislation. And the other is minimum, minimum content requirements. So that if you're going to uh, require that there be uh, uh, bottles recycled, then we, we want to be able to, uh, we want a certain amount of that recycled bottle to have recycled content. So if it's 10%, 15%, 20%, and that creates a market, one that creates a market for our members. Uh, and two, it, it obviously, there's a, there's, then there's material to help meet that requirement. And, you know, folks are really good about putting things in the blue recycling bin, but those things may or may not be recycled. And, and so. And that was a bit of a revelation, I think, for, uh, for a lot of people, you know, that the, the combination of uh, the consumer's inability to put the right thing in the right place or the, the, all of that. We just think when we put our refuse away or a recyclable away, we think we get, put the compost, we think we put the right thing in the right place. Man, that's not, that's not necessarily the, the truth over the last 10 years. I know in Baltimore County, there was a big, uh, sort of policy announcement about that, about how much was actually getting done. But I, you know, it's just, it's, uh, takes a ton of education just to get people focused on where to put the, you talk about the responsibility being on the producer, also some responsibility on the consumer there, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and so we have a term in the industry called wish cycling. And it's it's that consumer who I'm the king of that man. I'm the yeah, worst. Yeah, everybody, you know? is, right? Every everybody wants to feel good. They want to do good. They want to protect the environment, and they just say, "Well, I'll put this thing in the recycling bin, and somebody else can figure out if it can be recycled or not." That's right. Looks recyclable to me. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that could gum the whole process up for what, you know, 10 or 100 or 1,000 other residents are faithfully doing, right? I mean. Oh, ab- absolutely. You know, there's, there's, we talk a lot about contamination in our industry. And, you know, we, we've seen that, um, you know, the, so, so China for a long, long time was the largest market of our recyclables. 
And, and then about 10 years ago, they started to say, no, we don't want it. And, and what happened was they had a, the middle class started to grow. They wanted cleaner air. They wanted a cleaner environment. And their recycling facilities over there that were processing our recyclables were, were just belching out dirty air all the time. And, and they said enough of that. And they started ratcheting down uh, the amount of contamination they would accept in our recyclables that they were buying until they decided we're not going to buy any more. And, and so that was a big shift for the, for the industry because they lost a huge market. And they've since uh, you're starting to see a growing domestic market uh, for plastic and paper. Glass is kind of funky because it's got its own economics, but um, you know that 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 contamination uh, is, is something that industry really struggles with. How do we how do we ask our consumers to clean out that mayonnaise jar, uh, or how do we make sure that? that Coke bottle is completely empty so that it doesn't contaminate the newspapers or uh, that, that pizza box with an extra slice that didn't get eaten, you know, doesn't mess anything up. So um, the, the industry is evolving technology wise uh, to, to all these things, but uh, we're, we're still fighting uh, the issue of contamination. Now I get to uh, ask for some of your thought leadership on the Maryland political space and I don't want you to get in trouble with anybody, but I'd love to hear just as somebody who's been in the government and around uh, politics in Maryland and campaigns in Maryland. What are you looking at the next four years? What's sort of interesting to you? You know, I got to have something to to talk to when I'm when I do the Baltimore uh, Country Club uh, circuit, which is not just the Baltimore Country Club, but it could be any number of those where I have friends or family or clients. And I feel like I'm the only uh, I feel like I'm the only Democrat in the room sometimes. And so they, <laughs> they just let me have it. So if if you could give me a little piece of something I could probably just use as a, a defensive analysis just to let them know I got some idea what's going on with the uh, Maryland politics. That'd be great help. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm really excited about um, Westmore and his team and what they're, they're putting together. Um, I, I, I think I'm hopeful uh, about Maryland politics. I, there's, there's a, you know, I, I hear from some Republicans that, Oh no, it's terrible. It's, you know, it's the end of days kind of things. And and I, I don't think that at all. I think we've got uh, good people wanting to do the right thing. And and I so that makes me hopeful that we, we've got smart people uh, that, that are going to uh, promote some some good policies. And and, uh, you know, worst case scenario, it's only four years. So I don't think things are going to be quite as as bad as everybody, uh, at least my Republican friends might might predict. And um, I, I'm just, you know, I, I've met Wes more a couple of times. I've, I've been to a couple of fundraisers and he just brings a, a sense of energy and, and hope um, that, uh, that I think is important in the job. And, and folks who are moving from one administration to another, there's any anxiety about that. Um, while policies might, might change a little bit, I, I still think that, uh, Maryland's going to continue uh, to, to to be a, a leader in, in certain areas like cybersecurity and and, and hopefully education uh, will, will continue. So uh, I'm not I'm not too worried about 
the, the future of Maryland. I'm, I'm really excited about it. And I think we've got some young, bright minds coming into the, the General Assembly. Um, if there if there is one area of, of concern for me, it is uh, particularly the Eastern Shore uh, where, where I grew up and making sure that they continue to uh, have, have a voice in, in policymaking. Hey, that's uh, important to me, too. You know, I got to hang out with uh, Clay Mitchell and his old man, the speaker, you know, not not long before the speaker passed. And, you know, I think we all we all had a sense that I might not have a chance to see him again. I said, what can I do for you if my t- <laughs> my people take over the state again you know and he was like uh look out for the eastern shore man so i think we gotta have a little maybe we need a a a clay mitchell caucus uh i know there's one already there strong but maybe we could maybe we could translate that i'm i'm down to help in any way i can there that i have a i have to keep a promise there so please let's keep talking about that yeah i mean there's just so much Untap, in my mind, untapped talent uh, on on the Eastern Shore between all the all the schools and and I went to Salisbury State and and I even did a turn at uh, at the community college, Chesapeake College. So um, there's a lot of great, smart, talented folks over there that um, I I just don't want to get ignored. Um, you know, as as folks just simply wave on their by on their their way to MML and Mako conferences. That's right. I, you know, uh, fair enough. I, I just talked to, I got to co-teacher Len Foxwell, Professor Len Foxwell class at Johns Hopkins uh, with Mayor Jake Day of Salisbury. You know, what What a bright light that guy is. Yes, he is. And and I, I had a chance to speak to uh, Professor Foxwell's classes as well, I think a, a week or two before you did. And um, just, you talk about some young, bright minds, that, that class is full of them. Um, really in, impressive. A uh, lot of students there. It's been a big change too. I don't know if it was the course level or, but I, I remember last year, two years ago, it was right after the pandemic, and I met the kids that were at Hopkins taking Lens class. You know, these kids, they had no senior year of high school, no freshman year of college and now they're sophomores at Johns Hopkins University in the center of Baltimore welcome you know like <laughs> I, I just felt like man and then I saw this this so there was a there was a little bit of uh you know you could just see these kids that had been gone through something that that I did not at that age they just and it was so it was so so nice to see th- this next year whether it was a another level up or what or what have you uh, the kids were uh, were remarkably engaged, and it, it was uh, it was an equally wonderful and different experience. And it, it just shows you how much this pandemic has had an effect on all of us. Oh, without a doubt, I mean, I, my my poor son, he's he's fourteen now, and so fifth grade and sixth grade uh, was was through the pandemic. Um, seventh grade, he had major knee surgery, um, so that he was spent most of the year on crutches and in a wheelchair for a month. And uh, so now in eighth grade, he's finally getting that normal uh, middle school experience, being able to walk around and be in the building with his friends. So 
Um, well, you know, he might have a little of that right genius. This is, <laughs> you could go back and erase any part of your uh, early education. I think it would be middle school. So I think he's just getting geared up for the, the good times in high school ahead. And uh, he might have picked the right years to, by my by my middle school estimation, he might have picked the right years to uh, to stand out a little and get <laughs> stronger. I don't disagree. But, um, yeah, there they they was a bright, a bright bunch of kids. And. And, and Jake Day is just an incredible talent, uh, wonderful leader down there in, in Salisbury. And um, I'm, I'm just you know, really excited for he's for doing real things on housing. Like there's sometimes you have a job where you can call the call the question, which is like, hey, I'm a Democrat. I'm going to talk about housing and then I'm going to actually talk about producing housing because the way to get more housing is not to just talk about it or think you, how you can segment what exists or doesn't exist right now in the housing market, but you actually deliver product. You deliver housing to people. And what a remarkable thing that does to prices, to economic development, to community and amenity enhancement. And he just, you know, he's got a lot of power over there to you know, and that's a real, that's a real small city that's happening there, you know, so it's just wonderful to see a Democrat talk about housing and then, you know, go 100% uh, at it and and be able to point to it and, and show people and, you know, inspire others that, you know, we can do this. It just, you know, you don't, you don't have to talk out of one side of your mouth about affordability and housing stock. And then out of the other side, just, you know, uh, go against any conceivable housing uh, opportunity that 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 people want to get entitled in in your community as an elected official. You know, it's just you can't. That conversation has to stop because it's led to so much segmentation of our society. It's it, it's led to this polarity um, on wealth. You know, so anyway, you got me on my you got me on my uh, on my my preaching box there. Sorry. But no, I, I, housing is important. And ha- housing is one of the, the the four things that I think every every strong community needs. And it, it's it's housing, it's reliable public transportation, it's education, and it's transportation. And when I think a community can do those four things well, that is a strong, connected, vibrant community. And I think that's what what Jake is doing so well down there in Salisbury. Well, hopefully, we'll see more of it. Any last thoughts you got for? Or maybe before we uh, let you get back to your uh, your family and your business and your trade association, <laughs> uh, Damien, this has been wonderful. I, I really appreciate the the opportunity to come on and talk with you about uh, about the waste industry and, and Maryland politics. Uh, you are a, 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 a just a great resource and and, uh, and a kind uh, kind soul. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. He's Brandon Wright. And he's from the National Waste and Recycling Association. Collect, recycle, innovate. Sounds great, man. <laughs> Thank you. All right. See y'all. We'll, we'll see you next time on Center Maryland.